15. Proverbs 19. Hey, a couple quick updates here. Wanted to share as well. I don't know if Renee mentioned during announcements. Uh, uh, Dan Crager that also attends out here. He is leaving at 1 o'clock today. And he's actually taking a load of stuff out to Nebraska. Uh, for everybody that was affected by the floods and the blizzards out there. And so asked to keep him in prayer. Around 1 o'clock he's going with a caravan out there to deliver supplies to the farmers out there. And to represent Jesus. We need to keep Dan in prayer as well for that. A lot of neat things going on. Just opportunities to go out there and represent Jesus Christ practically. And that's the thing. Keep eternity in mind. And go out there and represent Jesus in all ways. Hey, let's pray. And we'll get started then. Lord, good to be here this morning. Thankful for just, just the day. I see the sun shining out there. I think of that verse in Isaiah, though. Our sins are like scarlet. They'll become white as snow. Thank you, Lord, for the time to be here, the time to worship you. We pray that you are glorified in everything that is said this morning. We pray the saints are equipped to go deeper in you. And we also pray, Lord, that your salvation is presented. Let your word be taught. Let your spirit lead in all ways in your name. Amen. What we've been doing in our study through the book of Proverbs, we're going to do a lot of chapter 19 today, get into chapter 20 a little bit, and I have one little backup verse from Proverbs 18. We like to find a foundational verse, and that foundational verse then is what the message will be about, and you see how all the other verses there in that chapter apply to it. So our foundational verse here as we're going through Proverbs is Proverbs 19 verse 8 for today. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. Loves his own soul. Now, King James, do King James, ESV says loves his own soul. If you have a different translation, it may say loves oneself, loves life. Now, the reason it says loves oneself is this. is because it's trying to talk about the soul as who you are. It's a really interesting Hebrew word. First used in the sense of humans back to Genesis 2 verse 7. Where it talks about how God created man and breathed life into him. And that the life we have, the soul we have is from God. I think we forget this. We think we're this amazing creation that I can move, talk, breathe, speak, whatever. The only reason I'm here is because the breath in my lungs is from God. The only reason I'm able to move, do anything, is from God. And God in his sovereignty can take that at any moment, at any time. I need to remember the creator, and I need to remember that I am creation, dust. And so this verse is reminding us that if you love your own soul, you love this idea of God is what gave you life, and then you want to go live for that. Now, it's a little dangerous, though, in some of those other translations where it says love oneself or loves life. I understand what it's saying. When you love yourself, you're saying you love the soul that God has given you and you love him and his purposes. The problem is, in today's vernacular, if you go out and tell people to love oneself or love life, you can get yourself in a little bit of trouble right there. Self-love, that is a deep issue. And the problem is, I've seen it so many times over the years in counseling. People will come in, and they're not happy in their life. They're not happy in their marriage. They're not happy in their situation. I've heard phrases like this over the years. You know, it's time for me to take care of me. It's time for me to focus on me. I spent all my years loving other people. It's time for me to love me. That's a dangerous place, folks. Jesus constantly is trying to tell you to not love yourself. He's telling you to die to yourself. It says in Colossians 3 that your life is in Christ. And through this whole world, I'm trying to learn to die to who James is and live for Christ. Self-love. People tell me how they struggle with loving themselves. Guys, we really don't struggle with loving ourselves. I'm assuming most of us here this morning got up. You probably cleaned yourself up a little bit. 
You're probably going to eat something. That's self-love. That's you taking care of yourself. And we have to remember how often we focus so much on us where Jesus is saying, no, you're supposed to love your soul, die to who you are, and live for Jesus Christ. Listen, I know people that will spend hours in the gym but minutes in the Word. That's a lot of self-love. They'll spend a whole lot of time getting ready to go someplace physically and very little time praying about it. They will spend weeks, maybe months, maybe years decorating a home while their marriage is falling apart. That's a lot of self-love. Jesus is constantly telling us to do what? That your life is in Christ, Colossians 3, 3. And he says in John 12, if you really want to gain your life, you've got to lose your life. That is what it is. If you really want to live, you've got to die first. And I know that sounds so strange because this is what I've noticed in my life. The more time and energy I spend focusing on myself, the less joy I have. Now, you would think that that wouldn't be that way. That you would think that if I had a day where I could do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, that that would be the happiest, most blessed day of my life. And there's moments of it. But generally, you just don't feel right. At least I don't. I find myself having the most joy in life is when I die to myself and say, okay, Lord, it's not about me. It's about living for you. And that's what Christ said in John 12. When you lose your life, you actually find your life. And to really live, you have to die first. That is a really difficult thing to do because our nature is we want to do the thing that makes us happy. We want to do the thing that brings us joy. And really, we're supposed to be focusing on glorifying God and bringing joy to others through Christ and focusing on Him. Our nature is so selfish. So selfish. As many of you know, Don and I do uh, some foster parent classes and training. And we love the ministry of being foster parents. But one of the things you have to do is you're required to take all these classes. And the, some of the classes get in there and they really just start preaching this idea of this, that the kids are inherently good. Kids really, you're not supposed to discipline them. And just all this other, to be quite honest, a lot of junk. And so what happens is every time they're up there teaching that and preaching that concept, I'm thinking kids are inherently good. I'm thinking, I got five. They're not inherently good. And I'm not saying that to pick on them. They're not. And we got a couple, uh, we got some foster twins right now. And we just absolutely love them. Just love them. They're, they're uh, 20 months old. And so what happened is this. The other day, Dawn was doing something, so I was kind of watching the kids there. And the twins, Victoria's older by just a few minutes. Aaliyah is younger. But Victoria is about twice the size of Aaliyah. So she's a few minutes older, and she's got all the other stuff too. So Aaliyah's the tiny one. Aaliyah is doing her desperation cry. Not her cry, the desperation cry. Like, life is not right cry. So I go in the living room, and what I see is Aaliyah is desperately trying to get her blanket. That's the world to her, 20 months old. Victoria, who's about twice her size, is just laying on the blanket, holding on to it, and just laughing. Victoria's fun, most fun thing to do right now is to take something from Aaliyah and not let Aaliyah have it. I love those girls, but they are not inherently good. They are not. That is sin nature. That is, it brings me fun, so I'm going to do it regardless of how it affects anything else. We learned that at 20 months old. And some people still do it at 20 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old, 80 years old. They're not caring about the things of God. They're not caring about the deep things. They are loving themselves, doing what brings them joy, peace, and happiness, rather than what the Lord says. This is what's right. This is what's good. Verse 8, get wisdom. Love your soul. Keep understanding. Find good. Let's build on this. Jump down to 16. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. 
But he who's careless of his ways will die. You love God. You love your soul. You love what God has given you. And then verse 16, you take his word and you obey it. And when you keep God's word, what happens is you're at a place of safety and protection spiritually and emotionally. But if you choose to get out of God's plan and don't keep his word, verse 16, you're going to die. He who is careless of his ways will die. You will die spiritually. You will die emotionally. You will despise it, as some translations say. You will show contempt for it. Because why? Because you don't care about the things of the Lord or the things of God or his word. You only care about yourself. I'm loving myself. This is self-love. No, we're supposed to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And when you lose your life, you find it. Let's build on this. Go to 20 with me. Listen to counsel. Receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Look how this builds. Eight, get wisdom. Love your soul. Get understanding. Sixteen, keep God's commandments. Sixteen, if you're careless of it, you're going to die. It's going to affect you. So twenty, listen to counsel. Receive instruction. Be wise. And then look at twenty-one. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Does this action bring glory to God? Does this action further their kingdom? Does this action follow God's word? Because I want to be blessed. And so since I want to be blessed, I want to do what God says to do. So therefore, 21, I will ignore the plans of my heart and do what God's counsel says. That's hard to do, folks. That's why you have to love your life so much that you're willing to lose it. That's why you have to love God so much you have to be willing to say, I cease to exist, Lord, and I just need to trust you so much because if I follow the plans of my heart, it's going to bring me temporary fun, temporary joy, temporary peace, and then I'm going to be very careless with my ways and it's going to hurt me. Because take a look at 27. Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you'll stray from the words of knowledge. When you quit listening to God, 27, you stray. We talked about this last week, this idea of God's tower being a tower of refuge and strength and protection. But it says also in Proverbs that we hasten to sin. So we're in this place of protection. We're in this place of refuge. And we're in this tower of safety. And then we see sin out there and we say, boy, that looks fun. So we run out of the tower of protection and safety. We ignore God. We ignore the Holy Spirit. We ignore his word. We go hasten to sin. And then we get hurt. And what do we do? We limp back to the tower of safety and protection and we say, okay, Lord, I'll never do it again. Days go by, weeks go by, months go by. I see sin out there again. Oh, I want that and I hasten. And it's this process we keep repeating and God's trying to lovingly tell us, stay with me, abide with me, remain in me and you will be blessed because what happens in 27, if you cease listening to instruction and you stray, now jump ahead to the end here, 29. Judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings for the backs of fools. If I get myself out of God's plan, out of his word, I'm bringing judgment on myself. And it's going to keep being repeated. Take a look at 19, same chapter. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment. For if you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. And you guys know people like that. Oh, this month they love Jesus deeply, passionately. 
Where'd they go next month? I don't know. They ran out of the tower of safety and now they're hastening to sin. Guess what? We have to rescue them and come back and assist this process again and again. This is why the Lord wants us to stay with him. It's those words from John 15. If you're not doing anything for devotions this week, John 15, folks. Abide in Christ. Remain in Christ. Stay as close as you can to Christ and you will be blessed. Now, that's about a 10-minute little introduction And I'm willing to bet I didn't tell you guys anything you've never heard before. So what did we just say? Love God. Follow his words. Die to self. Don't sin. I know. We know this, don't we? We got to put this into practice. We need to go back and take a look at this and say, Okay, eight. Lord, I love you. I'm going to love my soul so much that I want wisdom and do what you say. And then 16, I'm going to keep the commandments. I'm not going to become careless. 20, I'm going to listen to counsel. I'm going to receive instruction to walk in wisdom. And I'm just going to keep building on this, Lord. And then 27, I know if I cease listening to instruction and I'm going to stray, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Verse 19, I'll need to be rescued again. And 29, I'm going to have to have judgment come upon me because I'm not in your word. And it's not worth it, Lord. We know this, but we've got to put it into practice. See, here's the thing. Israel got themselves in trouble in the Bible because they had the head knowledge of what to do, but they didn't have the heart to follow it. One of the most dangerous things we can do as a believer is see these verses, mark them, underline them, memorize them, say, sounds great, and then never go put it into practice. What's the point of hearing this, understanding this, and not living this? Practical Christianity, folks. We take this, we apply it, and we go live it and represent Jesus Christ in every interaction that we have. Now, to show this, because the book of Proverbs is such a deep practical book, we're going to go through two examples now from Proverbs 19. And they're two difficult examples, folks. The first example is marriage, and the second example is forgiveness. Because these are the issues we deal with a lot. We have one backup verse, Proverbs 18.22, that I've been saving here for this message, Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's a blessing. I joke a lot about Dawn and I. We've been married uh, 22 years. Absolutely love her. And I'm saying this in all seriousness. Next to salvation, she's the greatest thing that God has ever given me. And I just absolutely love her. And I believe Proverbs 18.22 is so true. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's a blessing. It's a blessing of marriage to be married to her. Now, anytime I do a wedding, I usually go to this verse, Proverbs 18.22. And I'll say to the groom... You know, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I'll say, you have found a good thing in your wife, and we're going to pray for God's blessing on your marriage. And then I usually make this joke. I usually say to the bride, note the Bible does not say she who finds a husband finds a good thing. That verse is not in the Bible. It's not. You know what's actually in the Bible? Genesis 3. Husbands, we're a curse to our wives. Part of the wife's curse is us. Did you ever think that through, guys? So wives, when you're sitting there and you're frustrated about your husband and you're frustrated with this whole idea of leadership and submission and honoring and respecting, God says, I know. He's a curse. I've given you him. I think what happens is this. We forget that. Men forget how much of a blessing their wives are and women forget how much of a curse their husbands are. We need to understand the biblical balance of this, the blessing of marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're single saying, oh boy, a message on marriage. Nope. This is also for you. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 7, please. 1 Corinthians 7. Because it's really not a message on marriage. 
It's the message about Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you're married or single here this morning. It still applies. We're going to take everything we laid in that foundation, starting from Proverbs 19.8. And we're going to build on this now. Because here's the thing about marriage and being single. It is a blessing to be married. But take a look at 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. Paul says, I wish every man was single like me. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Being married is a gift. Being single is a gift. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 7. Each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. If you're here today and you're married, it is a gift from God. If you're here today and you're single, it is a gift from God. Now, the problem is, some of you are married and don't want to be married, and some of you are single and don't want to be single. So you don't look at it as a gift. And so you're trying to figure out a way to get out of the gift of being married, and some of you are trying to figure out the gift of being single, and you're trying to rush God. Take a look here at 1 Corinthians 7, look at verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. That word for seek is a really powerful word in the Greek language, where that becomes your driving focus. I have met people that are single, that their driving focus is to find a mate. It is not the glory of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you right now, I run into single people and they are unhappy being single. And if you're unhappy being single, you're going to be unhappy being married. Because if you cannot find joy and purpose in being single in Christ, what makes you think you're going to find joy and purpose in being married? Your joy comes in Christ and Christ alone, not in a spouse. One of the prayer requests I pray at almost every small group I do is for my identity to be in Christ. Because that's why I want my identity to be in Christ. I am married at this moment. That doesn't mean I'll be married my entire life. I'm not making a proclamation about Donna Mine's marriage. Don't take it that way. I don't know what the Lord has in store for the future of physical death. I do not know until death do us part. There may be a season of single. I don't know. I have kids at home right now. That's not going to last forever. But I'm in a season of that. I'm in a season of being the pastor of this church that I'm very blessed to do. Will that season last forever? I don't know. Seasons in life change. If I make dawn my focus, that season could change. If I make my kids my focus, that season could change. If I make Harvest Fellowship my focus, my identity has to be in Christ and Christ alone. That's why I'm not seeking everything with dawn or my children or this church. I have to seek Christ. And the problem is people that are single sometimes make their whole focus seeking a spouse instead of seeking Jesus. That's a dangerous spot. Some of you that are married are so desperate to be unmarried that you're seeking to get out. Now, there's biblical divorce, and that's another teaching for another day. But you're supposed to be seeking Christ and the blessing of that. There is a blessing in marriage. Let me stress this to you. Marriage came out of the Garden of Eden, folks. God's original plan, marriage, what a blessing is. It says in the book of Hebrews that marriage is honorable. We have a society have constantly just started pushing marriage back to the side. It is a wonderful blessing from God. And I just want to tell anybody here today, if you're married, you're blessed. If you're single, trust the blessing of God's season of singleness. And if you're here today and you're not married, understand the blessing of being married. Understand the blessing of marriage. But I'm telling you, do it God's way. In today's society we live in, we see so many people talk about marriage and they don't want to do it God's way. They want to do it some warped, demented way of the world. Do it God's way. See, here's the deal. I I see people treating marriage as almost like this goal in the future sometime, what have you. But we're going to be single and act like we're married until then. God can't bless something that he's not in. 
Did you see that verse in Proverbs 18? Obtain favor from the Lord. I want you to be blessed. So what happens is I see people do this. They're single, and they want to act like they're married. Now, if, if God opens the door and I can talk to them, this is what I try to explain to them. I say, okay, so you're both single, yep, but you're both living together, acting like you're married in all ways. Eh, okay, yeah. Okay, now when you guys get married, is your wife going to be allowed to date other men? Well, of course not. No. Okay, are you going to go date other women? No. So when you're married, you're not going to act like you're single? No. Well, then when you're single, why are you acting like you're married? doesn't make any sense to me. Put God first. Let him bless you. And if that's a situation, let's just be honest, that you're in right now, I tell you this in love, in the name of Jesus. Confess, repent, and let's get right with God. And let God bless you. Because we want to see you blessed. Marriage is such a wonderful blessing. Does that mean that every aspect of marriage is absolutely wonderful? No. And there's some verses that talk about that. Take a look at Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is the ruin of his father. And the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Proverbs 21, verse 9, please. Just a couple of chapters ahead. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And to make sure that that verse is emphasized, he repeats the exact same verse in Proverbs 25, 24. God does not repeat himself for no reason. If he's repeating a verse, he's telling you there's going to be contentions. I tell you, next to salvation, dawn's the greatest gift that God has ever given to me. I'm also telling you right now, dawn is the biggest struggle I have in my life. You've heard me define marriage like this before, and this is the biblical truth. I am a sinner with an inherent sinful nature that is selfish, that I'm constantly trying to die to. And I do dumb things because I'm a sinner. So what happened is my wisdom and God's plan, this sinner married another sinner that is inherently wrong, inherently sinful, and inherently selfish. And then we have decided as two inherently sinful, selfish people, we have decided to try to spend as much possible time together as we can in a very small house and live together for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So now we have two sinners with sin nature that are selfish now living together. And then we decided to go ahead and produce more little sinners. And not just one, not two, not three, not four, not five. And now we have seven little sinners. So now there's a total of nine sinners living in a house with inherent sinful, selfish nature. There's going to be issues, folks. People talk a lot about irreconcilable differences. Dawn and I have been married 22 years. We have irreconcilable differences. We will never agree on certain things. Never will. She will never admit she's wrong. And she will just not accept that. Once she realizes that, the marriage can be blessed. But that's another teaching for another day. There are things. It's just going to happen. There are contentions in our home. They are like dripping water. There are contentions. There are issues. There are times where it is difficult. I remember going to my wedding. Here I was. I was 19 years old. And I was heading to my wedding. And I remember my dad and I were driving in the car together. And I just asked dad. I said, dad, do you have any advice for me? And he said this. He goes, when it's bad, it's not going to be bad forever. And when it's good, it's not going to be good forever. That sums up marriage. There's good seasons and there's bad seasons. There's seasons of roughness and there's seasons of joy. There's seasons of contention. There's seasons of dripping water. But I tell you this, when you do it God's way, you're blessed. That's what it comes down to is doing it God's way. What happens, though, if you're in that difficult, difficult marriage right now and you don't want to do it God's way? I'm going to share this for me. This is from John Corson. I read this in devotional a while ago. It says, I have known people who have had difficult marriages. 
However, they have developed out of necessity a deep walk with the Lord, which never would have been developed if they had an easier, simpler marriage. I know people have hung in there and now say, if I could do it all over again, I would willingly choose my husband or wife because our marriage has brought me to a richness with Jesus I never would have known had it been easier. Now that's hard, folks. I'm telling you that's hard. But it's biblical and it's true. I have noticed, I joke about Dawn and irreconcilable differences. There are issues that we do not agree on and I have noticed that the Lord uses Dawn more than any other person to mold me into the shape of Jesus Christ. So therefore, he has used her in more ways than ever to say, James, this is an area you need to die to. This is an area you need to change. Okay, but Lord, she needs to change. Yep, Holy Spirit speaking to her. But Lord, we're talking about you right now. You need to change. You need to be more like Christ. See, here's the thing. Used to when I did marriage counseling, it seemed like it always ended up like this. We'd get done at the end of marriage counseling. Okay, let's make our list. Okay, what she wants you to do is to pick your socks up more. She doesn't want you to leave your stuff on the kitchen counter anymore. She would like it if you could be more affectionate by just touching her more and use words like, I love you more. Okay. Now, what he wants is he wants you to learn to respect him more. And we'd make this to-do list, and we kind of would finish the counseling. We'd go out like that. I tell you, I don't do that anymore. I've realized marriage counseling is this. You know what? Why don't you act more like Jesus, and why don't you act more like Jesus? And if you guys both act more like Jesus, your marriage is going to get blessed. Dawn and I read a book um, years ago that changed our marriage, and it's called Marriage in the Light of Eternity by Francis and Lisa Chan. And the key part of the book is this. It's not about what she needs to do different. It's not about what he needs to do different. It's about two people being so passionately in love with Jesus Christ that the only thing that matters is eternity. That's what changed our marriage. And I just love some of the points that comes out of it. I'm not going to share all of them, but here's just a couple quick points that come out of it. It's like, wow, these really hit us. It says, many people will tell you to focus on your marriage, to focus on each other. We've discovered that focusing on God's mission made our marriage amazing. When two people are right with God, they'll be right with each other. Eternal mindedness keeps us from silly arguments. There's no time to fight. We have better things to pursue than our own interests. Too much is at stake. God created us for a purpose. We can't afford to waste our lives. We can't afford to waste our marriage by merely pursuing our own happiness. Most marriage problems are not really marriage problems. They are God problems. They can be traced back to one or both having a poor relationship with God or a faulty understanding of him. Remember, there is an enemy who is seeking to destroy your marriage. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12. So we can't safeguard our marriage through more date nights, more vacations, more counseling. Those things are not bad. We have to see that there is more going on. Sincere and concentrated prayer will do infinitely more than any human strategy for a happy marriage. What we have discovered is this. If Dawn and I keep our focus on eternity, as it says, there's no time for silly arguments. People are dying and going to hell. So to sit there and say, you know what, it really bothers me when you do this. We still have those conversations. We still have contentions. I'm not going to try to present something that's not true. Dawn and I were talking one time in the kitchen. It wasn't that long ago. And the subject just came up about people's marriages that are hurting and just talking to them. And I remember her looking at me. She goes, she goes do you realize that that church, what they really think you're like? And I said, yeah, I know. I love it. I love it. I love it. They think, she goes, they really think that you've got it all figured out and you're the world's greatest husband. I said, I know. Isn't that wonderful? And I said, do you know what they think about you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Our marriage has ups and downs like any other marriage. Our marriage has contentions like any other marriage. Our marriage has dripping water like any other marriage. 
But I tell you this, we try to always keep eternity in focus and realize souls getting saved. How silly to fight over socks left on the bedroom. And we don't fight over socks on the bedroom. I just always go back to that analogy. How silly to fight over socks left on the floor when somebody's dying and going to hell. That's just ridiculous. How silly to sit there and say there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. And we're going to get upset about this. Lord, help us to keep an eternal focus on all we say and all we do. That is what it's about. And it doesn't matter if you're married or single. Married is a gift. Single is a gift. In whatever area of life you're in, you've got to keep Jesus at the forefront. That is what's changed our marriage, is realizing it's eternity. It's ministry. That's what it is. So with that being said, it takes us to our second practical point. Forgiveness. Because you've got to learn to forgive because people are going to hurt you. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 19.11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Corinthians 13 says this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You forgive them. I want to show you a couple of verses on this. Can you go with me to Ephesians 4 please? Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I want us to understand forgiveness. Take a look at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Jump ahead two books to the right, please. Colossians. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. It is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive as Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, verse 13, Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You've got to forgive. Now, usually at this point, there's somebody saying, but you don't know. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. You don't know. My response always back is, you don't know what people have done to me. We've got to forgive. We've got to learn to let things go. And here's the catch to this, folks. Some of you don't want to let things go. You want to walk around in anger and bitterness for the rest of your life. You want to walk around in this idea that you have been hurt and you have been wrong. And it creates this righteous anger fire inside of you. And you want to live in that. And you want to walk in that. And you want to hold grudges and bitterness. And Jesus is telling you, forgive them and let it go. See, what's the word forgive mean? The word forgive literally means to set free or send away. When you forgive somebody, you are set free from the hurt they have caused you. When you forgive somebody, you send away the anger, the bitterness, and everything they've done, and you are set free. Forgiveness is not about that person earning forgiveness or deserving forgiveness. It's about Jesus. You forgive not because they said they're sorry. You forgive because you are set free from it. See, the problem is we always think of forgiveness as this. Well, they need to tell me they're sorry. No, they don't. You just forgive them. That does not make what they did right. It does not make what they did okay. You're just no longer under the power of that anger and that bitterness. And the reason you forgive is because Christ has forgiven you. 
I mean, just think this through theologically, logically. Jesus forgives you of anything and everything. But you're going to look at what somebody did to you in this world and say, I'm not forgiving them. So I am willing to accept the forgiveness of Christ freely. I'm willing to say, Lord, thank you, but I'm going to withhold that from somebody else. That doesn't make any sense. Once again, you don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. You have been hurt. You have been wronged. You are not saying what they did was okay. You're setting yourself free from the bitterness that comes out of it. Forgive them. They're still wrong. Of course they're still wrong. Well, they need to know they're wrong. The Holy Spirit will convict them of that. They need to suffer for what they did. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. No one's getting away with anything, folks. You are setting yourself free from the bitterness and anger. If you choose to not forgive them, you are then encaptivating yourself. You are imprisoning yourself. You are saying, I want to walk in this bitterness and anger. And to be quite honest with you, some of you, that's what you want to do. And you've got to keep refueling the fire again and again and again. Because you're so angry at them. So you have to tell the story to someone else brand new so they can get just as upset as you are. And then you feel the fire. That's right. I need to go post something online. I need to replay it in my head. I got to keep rehashing this rather than saying, I just want to be set free from this. See, Jesus also made it clear of this. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Guys, that's a pretty powerful passage. You ever thought that through? If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. John Piper has a great point about this. I just want to read what he says. He says, Jesus is simply saying what he's saying everywhere else. And the way I would put it is like this. If the forgiveness that we've received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone, we're not a good tree. We're not saved. We don't cherish this forgiveness. We don't trust in this forgiveness. We don't embrace and treasure this forgiveness. We are hypocrites. We're just mouthing. We have never felt the piercing, joyful wonder that God paid the life of his son. If I'm saying to somebody, I will not forgive you for what you've done to me, how can I say that I understand the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has forgiven me? Because Ephesians tells me, Colossians tells me, when I understand how Christ has so freely forgiven me, I would forgive everybody that's ever wronged me. Proverbs tells me, Corinthians tells me, love keeps no record of wrongs. And let me repeat for the third time, some of you have been hurt, some of you have been wronged. There's no doubt about that. But you are choosing to walk in bitterness and anger and hate rather than being set free from it. By forgiving that person, you are not saying what they did was okay. You are not saying that, oh, I'm fine with it now. You are saying, I no longer am allowing this to control me because I understand what Jesus has done for me. And I want to walk in the freedom of that forgiveness towards other people as well too. And to harbor unforgiveness towards someone is to really stop and say, Lord... I don't know if I fully grasp and understand your forgiveness because if I did, why would I never forgive people? Folks, I'm telling you right now, we've all dealt with this. There there was a situation years ago where I had a real hard time with somebody. Hard time. Anytime that person came up, pit in the stomach. Anytime I thought about a pit in the stomach. To the point of any time that person's name was mentioned, even in the context of someone else's name, pit in the stomach just had to say, Lord, i got to be free from this. I don't want to walk in this. I have to be free. Forgiveness, to send away, to set free. That's why Christ on the cross could say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Didn't make what they did right, but he said, I am no longer, I am not going to allow this to control me. And if you're here today and you have unforgiveness towards someone, take the words of Jesus. 
He did not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. What he's saying is this. Do you really understand how I have forgiven you? Be set free from this. Send it away. Jump back with me now, if you will, to Proverbs 19. Let's finish this up. One last verse, Proverbs 20, verse 7. 20, verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. I want my kids to be blessed. And the way I want my kids to be blessed is I want to represent a godly marriage to them. I want to represent godly obedience to them. When I sin, I want to tell them I'm sorry. When I'm wrong, I want to tell them I messed up. I want them to see that I love my wife, and I want them to see that they, I think she's the most beautiful, amazing woman in the world. I want them to see forgiveness in action. I want them to see marriage in action. I want them to see, hopefully, a godly house walking it out. It is never too late to start that, folks. If you need to forgive somebody, you contact them, and you say the most eight most powerful words in the human language, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me. They may not accept it, but that's all you can do. If you're harboring unforgiveness, you need to learn to forgive because Christ has so forgiven you. If the marriage is a mess right now, you need to understand if we both get our eyes on Jesus, how much blessed it can be. We need to understand if we just go back and live Proverbs 19.8, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. Lord, I love you enough to be obedient. I love you enough to follow your word. I love you enough to say, I want to be blessed in doing what's right. Let's put this into practice. Guys, let's not mark the verses. Let's not underline the verses. Let's not just sit there and say, oh, good point. Let's live this. Let's go out and put this into action and say, Lord, I want to be blessed in you. Why would I purposely choose to not walk in the blessing of the creator of the universe? And when I am obedient in you, according to John 15, my joy is fulfilled. I want my joy to be filled in this world world, by abiding and remaining in Christ and just doing what he says and living it out. It's hard, folks. It is hard to live the godly Christian life. That's why I go back to one of the first points we said. If you want to live, you got to die. Die to who you are. Die to your expectations. Die to what you want. And just stop and say, Lord, I'm doing what you said is right because it's right. And I know if I do what is right, I will be blessed. Worship team, if you come forward.